1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And as we, as you're finding your place there, just kind of want to take a moment and remind us where we've been. Peter has been addressing the various household codes. Um, and that's what they would have been called in that day and age. And basically what that means is, how do I live? How do I live as my own household? And he's looked at the believers as they relate to government, believers as, the, as slaves relate to masters and wives to husbands. And now he turns his attention to a different relationship. He turns his attention to the relationships within the church. And I would like to admit at the outset, it's time that the church admits something. It's time that we decide to be real, and we have to admit something that's difficult to say out loud. Dealing with church people is hard. We have to admit that at the outset. Peter is addressing suffering people, and he takes time in this short letter in comparison... I mean, it's not like it's Romans or First and Second Corinthians. It's a short letter in comparison. And he takes a moment in this short letter to discuss the heat that sibling rivalry brings within the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ and the suffering that we experience here. Oftentimes, we can expect things in here to look like paradise. That's kind of the impression we get, is that when you walk through the church doors, you know, there's this sense of, you know, the church, church doors open and the, the choir of angels sings and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's perfection and everything's beaming and everybody's smiling and, and, and everything's great. But oftentimes it looks more like my son's bedrooms. The beds are messy. The dirty laundry's out on the floor. The, 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 the fingers pointing each other. And one's got one by the shirt and the other one's got his, you know, fist drawn. And uh, we, we have to admit that, that oftentimes church is not this uh, nostalgic place of, of beauty and perfection as much as it is siblings learning to live together. Siblings learning what it means to, to live with fallen siblings. What it means to, um, uh, to be together. Uh, uh, there, there's a wonderful marriage book out called When Sinners Say I Do. And it's a great book because the purpose is to helping you realize that both people are sinners. And how do I live with another sinner? I think there needs to be a, a church book. When, when, when sinners join the church, because we need this, this idea of how do we deal with each other when we're fallen, when we are, when we are sinners. I, I've titled the main idea, and, I, and I'm not really comfortable with this, but it's the, the best I can come up with. The main idea of this, this message is how to be a good sibling to bad siblings. It should be something more like how do bad siblings deal with bad siblings. How do we interact with each other? Now, the temptation, much like my children, is to begin pointing fingers each each other when we hear a message like this. Begin looking at others to to fix them and say, look at these things. Shouldn't you be doing this? And, and I want to challenge you today 
to, to not be fixing the person next to you or, uh, or, or the people that aren't here, but that in this, that we would look at this as expectations of ourselves. Instead of expecting others to be perfect, we must consider how we're going to react to the imperfections of others. Instead of expecting others to be perfect, we need to consider how we are going to react to the imperfections of others. Like I said, just like our children, we can be tempted to point fingers at others and accuse them of their wrongdoing. I, a number of times, my children and other people's children, they, they'll, they'll get into an argument. And, and you go to sit them down and have a conversation. And, and, and you say, now this is, this is what you've done. And the first words out of their mouth is, but he, right? That's the first words out of their mouth. No, 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 you're missing it. Let me try this again. I understand that they did this, but let's look at you for just a moment, and you did this. I know, but he, right? That, I mean, there, there's, that, there's that immediate reaction. And that's exactly what Peter doesn't want us to do with this passage, and so I, I'm, I'm desperately pleading with you to, to challenge you to hear God speaking to your life this morning, not to the person next to you. So with that in mind, read these words with me from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now in verse 8, we have the ideal sibling, the perfect sibling. This is, the, this is not ideal for others. This is the ideal for us. We would be the perfect brother or sister in Christ if we could... If we could do these five things. And so Peter here turns and he says, finally. Now, finally, generally speaking, this is not like the old Southern Baptist pastor that says, finally, and then he goes for another 30 minutes while he's trying to land the plane. Now, notice, Peter's nowhere near the end of his book. He's still got several more chapters. So this finally here is more like in summary. In summary, this is how we're to react. This is how we're to act Toward others. So, in summary, all of you. So, who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to these people who would be reading the letter. He's not speaking outside the church. He's not speaking to those who are lost and, and, and are out there. No, he's speaking to all of you. You know, it's kind of like um, with our children, and, they, and, and, you, and you tell them, no, you're not going to do this. Well, but Tommy got to do such and such. And, and, and what do you say? Well, I'm not parent, uh, Tommy's parent. Or maybe you say, well, if Tommy was going to jump off a cliff, would you? Uh, but wh- whatever it is that you say, you're not worried with Tommy, right? You're not worried with the, all of you. He's speaking to the church. 
Stop looking outside the church. All of you, those who are inside the church, this is the picture that you should have. This is the kind of description that should be describing us. And as we look at these things, these, these five um, descriptions, we can be tempted to create a checklist, right? We, we can be tempted to create a, a, a checklist. Now, there's different kinds of checklists, right? There's the to-do list. I'm a to-do list kind of person. I love checking off that final box, like, whew, you know, now I can, now I can relax, or, you know, I, I, can't, I can't settle until that to-do list is done. So there's the to-do list checklist, but there's also the checklist that is kind of a, 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 a way of ensuring that something is there, like an inspection list. This is his inspection list. He's not asking us, he's not saying, if you do all of these things, then you will be God's child. He's saying, you are God's child, so let's see how well you're doing at all of these things. You notice the distinction. One is seeking to earn grace. The other one is acknowledging God has given me grace, so now how do I live because of that? How do I live because of that? He gives us these five things. This unity of mind is his, is his first one. Unity of mind. And, and he picks a strange phrase that's only used here. Thanks, Peter. But it's, it's only used here, and it's not used elsewhere. And we have this, this idea of, of unity of mind, this agreement in in purpose. And I need to clarify this. This does not mean unison. He's not saying that everyone needs to have unity of opinion or, or everyone needs to have unity of, of, of the, the to-do list that we all are. We, if you began looking at a church that met this criteria and you thought, you know what, I'm going to look for a church that is, has unity of mind. That means they agree on everything. You begin looking and start here in Kabul and work your way out and tell me in what millennia you find that church. It's not going to happen. What, what is he, what is he, what he, what, where there is, where there are two Baptists, there are three opinions, right? There, there, there is, uh, we, we all have lots of opinions. He's not saying where we agree on everything that we do. He's saying that we agree on the direction that we're going. We agree on, we have unity of purpose, unity of direction. A like-mindedness is needed among God's children. But if I might remind you of messages earlier in which I said that's only accomplished when God's kingdom is is the goal and not our own kingdoms. So he's, in summary, he's referring back to this idea of have this unity of purpose, which is the church's purpose. That is Christ's purpose. God's kingdom, not my own kingdom. How do, I, how do I have this unity of mind? Secondly, he gives us this sympathy. Literally, it's the idea of sharing the feelings of others. Now, I can't speak for everyone in this room, but for myself, I don't tend to be an emotional person. I, I, I tend to be less emotional. So when I read this, it can be kind of convicting. Like, well, I'm not very sympathetic because I don't cry when I see somebody else cry. I, I, that's not me. I, just generally speaking, that's not my personality. So what does he mean when I share others' feelings? Though I may not express them in the same way, I can still rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Though we may not express them in the same way, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep when we understand where they're coming from, when we seek to understand what they're struggling with. When we see someone within the church struggling with a particular problem, we should be able to think through what they might be struggling with. It doesn't mean we're going to know everything, but something to the effect of when um, we experienced this when we were moving into our house. People thought, well, you know what? They're not going to be able to, uh, they're not going to be able to cook because all their stuff's going to be packed up. And so um, the people brought us meals. It was very sweet. Matter of fact, we got too many meals. So, you know, you got, you got meals on top of meals. And, and, and it was a great, it was a great, but they were thinking, well, we thought you wouldn't be able to cook because you didn't have any of your stuff. So, so we were going to bring, that's sympathy. Now, now, were they sweating bullets over how they were going to get their meals? No, they didn't feel it the same way we did. But they put themselves in our place long enough to think about what were we going to be struggling with. We as a church should be able to do that. When we look through the congregation, we should be able to say, you know what, I think they might be struggling with this, and, and I'm going to sympathize with that. I'm going to be, come alongside them and see how I might help them in that way. Unity of mind, sympathy. Very similar to... Romans 12:15 which tells us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, when we look at those those words of rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, I would like to say I think it's interesting that Paul puts both of those together in Romans 12:15. Because for me and this is just observation a wise man once told me it's very hard for young people to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I began asking why. He said, because they want the same things that those other people are wanting. They, they want to rejoice with themselves, with the, them being able to do that. He said, and it's very difficult. He was an older man. He said, it's very difficult for older individuals to weep with those who weep. Because we think, well, what if you had this? What if you struggled with the things I struggle with? What if you had the struggles in life that I, that I went through? And, and I think it's interesting here that Peter puts neither one of those in perspective. He just says, sympathize. Whether you're young or old, whatever the case may be, we should put ourselves in their shoes and, and take ourselves out of our world and think through, what are they struggling with? What are they dealing with in that moment? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Brotherly love is often compared to brothers in arms, or, or it's compared to um, people on a baseball team together, or, or it, it's, it's considered any number of like business uh, mindset in which we're going to work together as a team. There's this brotherly love. And I would like to say the church should be redefining brotherly love for everyone else. As we look at this passage and we see this, one commentator has said, where God is known as Father, there and only there can brotherly love really exist. Where God is known as Father, there and only there can brotherly love really exist. Peter is giving us this list of things that should be occurring in the life of the church. And the reason he's giving it to the church is because only the church can fulfill this. Only the church knows God as Father. 
Only the church has experienced the love of the Father, and only the church can then turn and express the brotherly love that we should have. The church should be a model for this. We, we should be a picture of this. So much so that Jesus says in John 13, they will know you, how? By your love for one another. They will know you are one of my disciples by how you love one another. By the brotherly love that you express. So, brotherly love. Fourth, a tender heart. Tender heart. Are they sensitive to the needs of others? Much like Jesus was moved to compassion when he saw the people. Are we sensitive to the needs of others like Jesus was when he saw the needs of the people? Now, tenderheartedness is not something that we want to accuse another man of, right? It's oftentimes seen as a weakness. But I would like to read to you just a few passages in which Jesus models this the way we should for the church. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Matthew 15, 32, Then Jesus called to his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on this crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on their way. Jesus, the man's man, in my opinion, the model for every man, has compassion. He cares for those who cannot care for themselves. He is sensitive to the needs of others. He is thoughtful of what is going on in their lives. Now, now imagine if you had young siblings in your home that were tender-hearted like this towards one another. What a difference that would make. Imagine if you had young siblings in your home that expressed brotherly love the way they received love from their Father in heaven. Or they express sympathy for their, for, their, for their siblings the way that they have been given sympathy. Or they have a unity of mind or a unity of purpose, and they want, to, they want to please their father and mother the way Christ has called us to seek the Father's pleasure. Imagine what that family would look like. Wouldn't that be like the perfect family? I, I, man, talk about easygoing right? I mean, it would just be no holds bar comfort. But that's not what it's like. Imagine the church doing all of those things and what it would look like. Number five, that they would have a humble mind. In other words, that they in their mind would not exalt themselves above somebody else that they would put others' needs first. The church should be those who put the needs of one another above each other. Almost like a a competition 
for who can be lowest man on the totem pole. Oh, no, you. You need it. Oh, no, no, you take it. No, no, I, I want to serve you. This, this humility, this, it's the opposite of haughtiness. It's the, it's the opposite of exalting themselves in their mind above one, one another. It, in reality, is having the mind of Christ that is described in Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, when Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Who though, this is the kind of mind you're supposed to have, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, in his, in his humility, emptied himself of everything. He had the right of a king, but emptied himself of everything to become a servant, and as a servant... Served to the point of death. Now, if I were to ask the men in this room, if somebody came through these doors and, and, and they had a grenade on their hand, in their hand, and, and they were to throw that grenade down the aisle, which of you would not jump on the grenade to save everybody else? Most men in here, undoubtedly, would, would, they would go the extra mile to save the group. Now, let me ask you another question. If sin came through those doors and crept into the hearts of people, which of you would, not, would endure the, the lashing of the tongue that would come when you confront sin? If we are to be humble-minded, we must be willing to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ not because we think we're better than them, but because we love them too much to let them continue in sin. As a matter of fact, we love them so much that we're willing to endure the backlash that comes from confronting sin. We're willing to endure and put ourselves in that place that, that God might be exalted in our midst, that I would not be lifted up, that I would not come to my own defense, but that I would seek to serve them and serve God above my own comfort. This is a tough, tough list. And when we look at this checklist, we have to ask ourselves, where is our weakness? And I have a feeling most of us would say, yes. One, two, three, four, and five. Yes, those are my weakness. The question is then, are we comfortable with our weaknesses or do we desire something more? Do we want something more? Do, do we want to be this kind of person that has unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind? It's one thing to consider our attitude and care for one another 
when it's in the perfect condition, but what about when it's not the ideal setting? That's why Peter recognizes he needs to address that and does so in verse nine, in the beginning of verse 9. How do you react towards your brothers and sisters in Christ when they're not God's perfect children? When they too are struggling with sin. Notice what he says in this passage. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Why does Peter need to address this? Why does he even need to say this? Well, he needs to say this because it's not our natural inclination. right? If it was our natural inclination, there would be no need of saying this. But he recognizes that when we are evil is done towards us, what's the first instinct? I'm going to get them back, right? Just like young siblings. And I keep going back to that because that's the, the idea that he has captured here. Just like young siblings. Well, he hit me, right? That's the reasoning for hitting them. And then their reasoning for hitting them in the first place was because they hit them. And it's like this downward spiral because we've sinned against one another and we don't know where it began, He's saying, don't continue this cycle. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. What, don't, don't give in to this natural inclination of sin. But on the contrary, bless. But on the contrary, bless. One of the hardest five-word commands to accomplish, in my opinion. Blessing those who are hurting you especially in the situation of church life. On the contrary, bless. It's not enough not to say something bad. It's not enough to remain silent for the Christian when they are reviled by a brother or sister in Christ. It is not enough to... to, Sit and endure those things. No, no. We can't just sit silently. We must, in turn, bless those individuals. Peter doesn't have something new here. He is is carrying on Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I kind of like that command after reading what's next. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, listen to that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, Jesus calls us, and Peter here, in these words, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to something difficult. Trading in this justice that I inflict by myself for blessing my enemies, blessing those who persecute me. And I will say, blessing for those who injure you looks different for believers than it does unbelievers. 
Now, I, I don't have time to unpack that, and you can ask me afterwards, but blessing for blessing those who are brothers and sisters in Christ that hurt you looks different than blessing those who are not brothers and sisters in Christ when they persecute you. It looks different. I mean, for the mere fact that in Scripture, when we are sinned against by a brother, we're told to do what? Confront them. 1 Corinthians tells us that we are to, to judge our brothers. But what right do we have to judge those outside the church? We don't confront those outside the church. We give them the gospel. We don't, we don't confront the sin because they have no foundation upon which to confront. They don't believe the Bible is God's word. They don't believe in the truth. But when they say they claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, then now we have to, be, we have to confront sin. Like I said, I don't have time to unpack all of that, but regardless of whether they're brothers and sisters or whether they're not, we are called to bless them. We're called to be a blessing to them. Jesus gives the example of praying for and loving them. How are you praying for those who have persecuted you? How are you praying for those who have sinned against you and the church? How are you loving them? In what ways are you planning intentionally to do those things? These things sound really good, but they're really hard to do. And you know what I've learned? Hard things require greater motivation than easier things. It doesn't take much motivation for me to eat a piece of pie. Really doesn't. Why? Because it's easy right? It's a fork. I learned how to use that a long time ago, and it, it's sweet. It's good. But now, swallowing something that isn't satisfying, I gotta, gotta muster up, you know? Like, I gotta recall all of those things my mom said, but you don't have a, you don't leave anything on your plate. You gotta have a clean plate. You, you eat what's put before you. I gotta recall all those motivations, right? Well, the Christian life is even even more so. When we're told to love the lovely, that's easy, right? But when we're told to love the difficult, love the hard to reach people, love those, those who are difficult in the church, that takes a lot more motivation. That's why Peter gives us a motivation in 9b through 12. For to this, for, that's always a reason word, for, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." The first of the motivations here is the fact that if we are children of God, we have been called to love difficult people. We have been called to bless the unlovely. Why? Because we have received a blessing. I don't bless them because they deserve it. I blessed them because I didn't deserve it, and God blessed me. 
I don't bless them because there's something magnificent in them that I just can't live without. I bless them because there is nothing in me worth saving, and yet God sent his son to die on a cross on my behalf. I don't bless them because they're my friends. I bless them because they are my enemies, and God died for us while we were yet enemies of him. The calling that God has placed on our life as children of God should be a motivation. And because we don't often think about the blessing of salvation, we think it difficult to love the unlovely. We must be motivated by our calling. We must be also motivated because we desire a better life. We desire a better life. And notice what he says in, um, in these verses, in, beginning in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue. Man, I, I, don't, I just don't want to go much further than that, right? Whew. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice what he says here. For those whoever desires to love life and see good days. Who here doesn't want to love life? Who here doesn't want to see good days? Everybody does, right? We want to wake up in the morning singing songs to God. We want to wake up in the morning, and and not VBS songs, we want to wake up in the morning singing songs of just praise and adoration to God. Just because we love life. We want to have meaningful lives. We want to have, when he says good days, literally, it, it means beneficial days. It means days of meaning. Who here doesn't want meaning in life? We all do. And because of that, God's word in Psalm 34 tells us, if you want these things, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Let let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, I don't have time to deal with all of these three things, I, I mean, each of them could be a, a sermon in and of itself, but let me, let's just notice the relationship here. When we look at these verses, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice those, those words. Those are not let go and let God kind of words. Those are get moving kind of words. Those are marching order kind of words. He says, keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep, let him hold his tongue from evil. If we want to see good days, if we want meaningful life, if we want to love life, then we have to work for it. 
We have to work to keep our tongue from evil. We have to work to turn away from evil and do good. We have to work to seek peace and pursue it. But we do this because in these things, in this, in this relationship, we have God's blessing of life. Final motivation, for the eyes of the Lord are on those, on the righteous. And, those, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It is not as though the actions of the righteous and the actions of the, well, the actions of the righteous are seen by God, but the actions of the unrighteous are not seen by God. That's not what he's saying here. There can be a temptation when we see this that, oh, well, the eyes are on those who do righteous, but not on those who don't do righteous. No, no notice what he's saying here. Whether we're righteous or evil, neither one of those are hidden from God. But one endure, engenders a loving gaze and open ears, and the other engenders God's wrath. The reason, the motivation that we live with one another in a certain way, and the way described in verse 8, the reason we do that is because we fear God. Just like we looked at previously. Just like we looked at in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, when it says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Just like that, the same thing is true. If we want to love one another, we need to fear God more than we fear losing our comfort. The, the fear of God is an amazing motivation. So that when we look at these things and, and, and we see this, this checklist, we can be tempted to do the checklist to get something, or we can be tempted, or we can do the checklist to please our Heavenly Father. It, it, it's the difference of, okay, I want a good life. I want blessings in life. We hear this often in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of this idea of, I want to see good days. I want to be blessed in everything I do. Which, by the way, we're never promised in Scripture. We're promised suffering. We, we want good things. So, you know what? I'm going to do this checkboxes so that I can get those things, right? It's like the child when you tell them, okay, if you make your bed every day for a whole month, then... We'll get you, well, this would work for my children, maybe not for yours. We'll get you uh, a Batman sticker for your wall. Okay. That, that would be, they get up every morning, and they make their bed without being asked, you know, and, they, and, they're, and they're going through all 31 days. But then what happens the moment that sticker is on the wall? The next morning, the bed is not made, right? Why? Because they weren't doing that because they loved their parents because their parents are so lovely and so wonderful and, and, and treat them with such great respect all the time. And no, that's not why they were doing it. Why were they doing it? Because they wanted something. We as Christians can go through this to-do list and say, well, I'm going to live this way so that God owes me something. God owes you nothing. God, God is not a genie in the bottle to be rubbed, to be wished for, and, and, and if I do all the right things, maybe he'll give me a, a, a new Mustang, or, 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 or it, that's not the kind of God that we serve. 
No, he's saying we do all these things because we love God. Because we can't bear the thought of being removed from his presence. Because we want to adore God. We want to be with him. We want to be at his side at all times. Because we want the eyes of the Lord upon us. Because we want to love life and have meaningful days with him. Because we want the blessing of life eternally with him. That's why we live with one another in this way. Not because it's easy. Not because it's the thing we're supposed to do. Because we love God and we want Him to be honored in our midst. So what's your motivation for living with your brothers and sisters in Christ? If it's because you think they're so great, it won't last. Because they will prove to you that they are not. At some point, I'm, I'm, making, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but as I stand before you today, at some point, everyone in this room will offend everyone in this room. It's going to happen. At some point, everyone in this room will be upset with me. It's going to happen. You're like, oh, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you down. It's going to happen. But your motivation for living with me or living with anyone else in this and doing life together with anyone else in here must not be because you think they're so great. It must not be because you really like their personality. Because when push comes to shove, that won't last. Sure, it is enjoyable serving those that you enjoy spending time with. But our motivation must be something much deeper, something grounded in something much better, something much more magnificent, and that's in God's glory and presence. Motivate your righteous living with unrighteous people by thinking often about these truths. Think often about your calling, the good life, and the blessing of God himself. So what do I do now? What do I do with this? How are you going to live with sinners this week? Because you know what? There are going to, there's going to be sinners in our midst this week. You know what? We, we're going to have church picnic later. You should all come. But you know what? There's going to be sinners there. I'm just warning you now. And somebody's probably going to sin against you in some way. And you may be able to blow it off. Maybe you won't. How are you going to live with them? How are you going to live with them when you see them in the store this week or you see them at the post office or the bank or, or wherever else you see them? How are you going to live with them? There's three ways I think you can live with them. Look to the plumb line. Let God's word be the thing you measure your life by, not how they're treating you. Let God's word, these words in verse 8 of chapter 3, let those be the plumb line for how you're going to act toward them, not how they have treated you. Number two, so look at the plumb line. Number two, acknowledge the difficulty. Don't pretend that people are easy to live with. Don't even try. Don't even want to think the best about people. I'm not a pessimist, uh, or uh, I'm... I'm just saying, we need to be honest and say, you know what? People are going to sin against me. Plan. Plan for their sinning against you. How am I going to react when people sin against me? Because it's going to happen. 
This side of eternity, it's going to happen. And glory, you know what? We won't have to worry about it. But here, we have to worry about this. So acknowledge the difficulty and plan for it. Look to the plumb line, acknowledge the difficulty. Number three, meditate on the truth. If we let our minds constantly wander, we will rehash the sin against us over and over and over again. You know I'm right, right? When somebody sins against you, you may be able to keep your mouth shut, right? In that moment. But as the week goes on, what do you do when you're alone? I cannot believe they did that. How dare they talk to me like that? What have I ever done to them to deserve them talking to me like that? And, and by the end of the week, the next time you see them, now your, your arms are crossed and your shoulders are cold and, 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 and your back is to them. Why? Because we've allowed our minds to dwell on this sin over and over again. So if you want to live differently with them this week, don't let your minds wander on these things, but train them to think constantly about these truths. Train them to think about our calling. Train them to think, our minds to think about the truth of who God is and, and our desire to be with Him. Train, him to, train our minds to think about the good life found in God's place. Think often about the truth. So this week... Look to the plumb line, acknowledge the difficulty, and meditate on the truth. Bow with me in prayer.